0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's always easy to remember getting bad news, right? Getting dumped, finding out someone you care about is sick. Those kind of moments you can't shake them. John Kale, the composer, record producer, founding member of The Velvet Underground, remembers the day that he got kicked out of the band. He and Lou Reed, the band's singer, had very different visions for their act. They'd been arguing about it for a while. Then one day, Sterling Morrison, the band's guitarist, approached Kale. He'd just gotten out of a band meeting, and Kale hadn't
2: been invited. Then shortly after that, Sterling showed up and, and said, I just saw Lou. He said, we got a gig on in Cleveland. I said, oh, great. He I said, I said uh, yeah, but he said, if Cale goes, I don't go. So make up your mind, you want to go with Cale in the band or you want to go with me? And that was it. So I suddenly thought, well, I better get going on, on the production side of things. It's Bullseye.
1: Coming up, I'll talk to John Cale about what came after that, the dozens of records he produced, a solo career that spanned decades, and how he and the Velvet Underground owe almost all of it to Andy Warhol.
2: I mean, Andy opened up a whole, all sorts of doors for us. He understood it. I mean, Andy just really wanted to be used. I mean, he's fabulous. He did all his album covers for us. And if you wanted solutions, creative solutions to things, I mean, was they're, they're like a, a pot
1: of gold. Later on, I'll talk with TJ and Dave. They're an improv duo based in Chicago who do an hour-long play on the spot, completely different, every night, totally out of thin air. I'm all, like, kind of always ready
3: for someone in the back to be like, Who said you could do this? What is happening, and why do you think you can do this? Like that, And I'd be able to offer nothing of proof other than, like, I don't know, they let me.
1: And we'll have new live music from the band Split Single. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. John Cale co-founded the Velvet Underground. He performed on the band's first two records. That was just the beginning of his career, though. After he left the group, he went into the studio, producing legendary artists like Jonathan Richman, Patti Smith, and the Stooges. He's also a solo artist. He's had dozens of albums spanning genres like pop, classical, noise, electronic, more. His latest work is a reissue, Fragments of a Rainy Season. It's a live record originally made in 1992 during a tour of Europe. Here's a song from it called Paris,
0: 1919. She makes me so unsure of myself Standing near never ever talking sense just a visitor you see, someone's wanting to be seen. Coming through the door, make it carry us away. It's a customary thing to say or do to a disappointed permanent. in
1: John Kell, welcome to Bullseye. It's Thank great you, to have man. you on the show. Thank you. Um, how do you feel about revisiting your old work, and especially since this re-release is a collection of re-recorded versions of songs? How do you feel about revisiting or revisiting?
2: Oh, they're they're, they're important. They have their own kind of view in the world. This record was done was planned for a small tour of France. And we did it. With, we took our, piano, our own piano with us. We got a Steinway piano, and we loaded it in and out every day. And and the pride of French aerospace it was a little robot that lifted it up to the stage and lifted and rolled it out to the truck. Did maybe. you travel with the robot? Yes. yes. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah.
1: I'd put that if you ever do that again. I'd put the robot on the bill. Yeah. John Kale and his piano robot. That's right. Piano robot out first. <laughs> the opening act. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I, hate, I hate to tell you, John. Yeah, the
2: robot's closing. Yes, you're opening for the robot. Jeez, oh, <laughs> I knew they'd catch up to me one day. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we 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 drove around France and Germany, uh, uh, and we're trying to be organized about it and do it. You know, the same set list every night, so that we knew where everything was on the tape and all that. But really, the best results came from mixing it up. My approach to it, anyway, is that if I can't figure out a better way of doing it, then and, and imbuing it with some new life and another point of view, maybe, or how sarcastic, can I sing this song?
1: Which Which of these songs on this record, which was recorded in 1992 and comprised mostly of material that you had recorded previously, which of them do you feel the most differently about now? Like, what is most it differently that, about? Yeah, what is it that when you sing it in all in concert, them. you want it you want it to be sarcastic, for example? No, all
2: of them. I mean, you can't. I can't go to a concert and do something the way that it was done before. So every time, I have to bring something, and it tells me because I know that these songs can live under different aegis. You know, it's like this is a different person singing this song than it was four months ago, and in the case of the tour, from the night before. And it really makes things interesting because you've got you've got to reinterpret the song. And, you know, when you're doing Heartbreak Hotel anyway, I mean, Heartbreak Hotel is a is a reinterpretation to begin with. But the way it's done brings attention to the lyrics, that bombastic sort of heavy metal arrangement.
1: I, I have actually a clip of you performing Heartbreak Hotel in, I think, 19, 1980. You recorded in the mid-70s. Um, but this is you performing it on Spanish TV. Oh, yeah. In 1980. Let's take a lesson. The end
2: of loneliness. Heartbreak. What's wrong?
4: Feel so lonely. Feel so lonely. Feel so lonely. Feel so lonely. Feel so lonely
1: it's i mean it sounds amazing you're mm-hmm. you're like exactly the right age to have been hit by the rock and roll revolution in the mid to late nineteen fifties yeah um what's the first what's the first pop records that you remember
2: the rock and roll and talk yeah yeah and, and uh when's that fifty six yeah but I... Yeah, I remember the film "Rocket on the Clock" coming around to the local cinema, and I was up on the stage dancing. It was like all sorts of troublemaking. It was great. It was it was a, a jumble for me because that was one half that got me really excited, and the other half was then um, improvising my way through a piece for the for, for a radio broadcast, and suddenly deciding, yeah, I think I want to be a composer, and everywhere I turn is, oh, so you want to be a composer, do you? And they'd find all sorts of. Experience. How are you going to make a living doing that?
1: I, I want to play a song called "The Ostrich." This is a kind of a version of a dance craze record from the. I think it's nineteen sixty-four. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. Um, quick, quick records. But uh, it's. It's a real weird uh, take on a record from 1964. Uh, Let's take a listen to it, and we'll talk a little bit about what it meant in Europe. I feel like I can imagine like a record executive going like, "Well, one-eyed, four-mouth, flying purple people eater worked. Well, let's 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 cut it and see how it goes." <laughs> hey, where, where, how did how do, how did this song play into your career?
2: Well, that's it's how I first ran into Lou. This is wow. Lou, Lou Reed for yep. folks taking notes at home. and they were the. Uh, Record company was putting out records in the style of, like, they put out style in the style of Beach Boys, whatever was popular at the time, and they wanted the British sound, so they made a whole bunch of songs in the the Brit sound, and that's where I met Lou. Who they spotted Tony and I at a party, and they said, "Hey, look, you look commercial, you know that." You know, we've got this record, the Ostrich, and we really love you to come and. And we went. Our eyes popped out of our heads. How did you? Yeah. How do? In what way did you? In what way did you look like you could sell records? We had long hair. I mean, every, that was the beginning of the whole era. And um, we lived on the Lower East Side, and uh, you know, the kids around there were going nuts. I mean, they they said, "Hey, you're the Beatles!" They throw stones too, just to get your attention. <laughs> and. um and Lou, make, and Lou Reed had, had written that the ostrich song as like a songwriter for hire, right? Yes, yes, yes. He did all of that. But he he, he pulled me aside at the studio and said, "Listen," he said, um, "they're not really interested in me." He said because I have all these other songs, and they won't let me record them. I said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "Well, there's a song called Heroine. It's you know, and it was like red to a bull." I just said, "What do you mean they won't let you record them?" We'll go to someone else at record recorder. Come on. Was there
1: something that you wanted out of starting that band? Like, did you, were you thinking? Yeah, well,
2: I wanted to break the rules. I wanted to be successful to break the rules. And so did Lou. I mean, uh, he didn't know quite exactly what the hell was going on. He was just going on about how, I can't believe a guy from Wales came down here. and wrote. If you listen to the box set, you'll see the progression from... Venus in first sounding kind of folky, and then us doing it with the band, with the, with the drone and everything else, and it matched his lyrics, do you know what I mean, it, it really, so there was one side of Lou that was the happy-go-lucky rocker, and then there was the other side that was the poet with serious thinking. How did you define success at the time? Did that mean
1: that you were a professional musician? Did it mean you were a rock star? Did it mean that you made the greatest albums ever?
2: Or What Like, what did a, you want? God, I have no idea how I defined I just said, we got to get out of here. That was it, and we just keep working all the time. It took us a year to get to, to the Banana album. Every weekend, Lou would come into the city and do that. It was a good lesson. And then Andy popped up, and from there on it was... Hold on to your britches. What was exciting to you about
1: the music that you were making in that, in that first year? Like when you were working on the weekends, what made you think it was something that was worth doing?
2: Well, it took a while. I brought the viola into it. I also learned bass. I didn't know, really, until we hit Venus in first with that kind of tapestry of noise that was... And Lou and I were constantly talking about about literature and about Phil Spector and about Bob Dylan and where do we fit into all of this until Venus in Furs, Black Angel's Death Song, and all tomorrow's parties. Then you have something that's totally different. And in the background was this thing that we knew was staring at us at the face that you can't get a gig unless you play top ten songs. And I thought, oh, well what we're going to do is we're going to write some songs and nobody will be able to figure out how we did that it sounds like part of part of what you really wanted
1: was was to kind of solve the puzzle which is how do you cheat how do you do something new and different and whatever that like satisfies your desire to be doing something and also get the thing which is like this is working like for audiences like i'm making a living or this is like this is a rock and roll record you know what i mean
2: yeah it was but that time you'd gone through andy though so yeah we worked hard at being different but what was important was that it allowed each of us to have our own particular way of doing things the ostrich was a detuned guitar it was like all on b all the strings attuned to b so there was a certain amount of experimentation still going on, but really all we had was like getting together, getting high, and really playing for a long time, improvising, and seeing what happened because things invariably happened with Lou. I mean, he'd come up with some lyrics or whatever. I want to play a little bit of uh,
1: "Venus and Furs" uh, from the Velvet Underground uh, from 1966, and uh, you'll hear my guest, John Cale. Shiny, shiny,
0: shiny boots of leather. With flash, girl child in the dark. Comes in bells. Your servant, don't forsake him. Strike, dear mistress, and cure his heart. The costumes she shall wear, ermine furs adorn the imperious Severin. Severin, oh, you there?
1: Did Andy Warhol just come to one of your gigs?
2: Yeah, he came with the entourage. With uh, Gerard and Billy and people from the factory.
1: Did you know? Was it like a, Was it like waiting for Goffman, like backstage? Like
2: Andy Warhol's coming tonight. Andy Warhol's coming tonight. There was no backstage. It was just <laughs> um, suddenly these people showed up, and we were arguing with the owner. What were you arguing with the owner about? Uh, typical, you know. It's like, can't play that song. Don't play that song again. So you play that song again, you're fired. And uh, but there these this Sandra came in all of a sudden. Gerard was dancing to Venus in Furs with a whip, and you know there was the scene. You know, and I mean, Andy opened up a whole, all sorts of doors for us. He understood it, and in the end, he said, "Look, he said, I can you, I can get you booked in museums all over the world. You know, for the rest of your careers." He said, "But I don't think you're that's the place you should be. You know, you are an audience out there. You've got to go and play." How did you feel about that? Yeah, I understand that. But I don't understand still why Lou fired him without saying anything to anybody. He just, and we were still playing together. And I, I sort of, I was waiting for an explanation. And it never came. I thought it was terrible. By that time, the thing that really drove the band was Lou and I, and how we really wanted to get this done and that done. And we had an accomplice in Andy who really helped us. And then there was a discussion about the direction of the band, that pretty much put the put the sock in it
1: was it like a literal discussion about the direction of the band like a let's all sit
2: together in a living room and decide whether this is a yeah kind of not in a living room but some of it was explained to us by says you know who wants to do this kind of song he thinks we should be doing more pretty songs and i said yeah that's fine i said but you know you're throwing away everything we've just just established here and that's going backwards We've done, achieved something here, and you're, like, ready to abandon it. All of this started eating away at everybody. But having well, ate away at me, anyway, that he'd fight Andy. It sounds like a big thing, one of the big things that you wanted
1: was this thing that had been motivating you through working with Lamont Young, through joining this band, through doing whatever, which was to not do anything that felt like a step backwards, to always be doing something that felt like a new thing.
2: Totally. Yeah. Then shortly after that, Sterling showed up and, and said, I just saw Lou. He said, we got a gig on in Cleveland. I said, oh, great. I said, I said yeah, but he said, if Cale goes, I don't go. So make up your mind, you want to go with Cale in the band or you want to go with me? And that was it. So I suddenly thought, well, i better get going on, on the production side of things.
1: You'll hear the rest of my conversation with John Cale after a short break. He'll tell me about how, after he got kicked out of the Velvet Underground, he got on a plane to Detroit to check out the first band he'd ever produce, The Stooges. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Take Bullseye and more with you with the NPR One app. NPR One finds you the best from public radio and beyond. Surprising interviews, local stories, and your favorite podcasts. NPR One is ready to make driving, holiday shopping, or cleaning the house better. Find NPR O-N-E on your app store. And one other thing, podcast listeners, if you've been enjoying Bullseye and you want to keep it going, one of the best ways to do that is to throw a little support to your local NPR station. That support allows us to keep doing our thing. Go to stations.npr.org, stations.npr.org. You'll find your local station there. Donate what you can and tell them Bullseye sent you And thank you so much to those of you who've done that already. Again, that's stations.npr.org. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Mrs. Fields, who wants to help you delight your friends, family, and clients this holiday season at MrsFields.com. It's easy to send handcrafted treats to anyone, anywhere. Choose from classic chocolate chip, hand-frosted buttercream cookies, or rich and flavorful bunt cakes. All baked fresh and packaged with holiday cheer. To order, visit MrsFields.com and use code NPR to save 20% at checkout. It also lets Mrs. Fields know you appreciate NPR, too. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is John Cale. A reissue of his album, Fragments of a Rainy Season, comes out this week. He was, of course, a founding member of the Velvet Underground. When he got kicked out of the band, he went solo. He also started working behind the scenes, producing records. One of the first bands he worked with was The Stooges, fronted by Iggy Pop, of course. Here's I Want to Be Your Dog. From the Stooges' debut album, produced by John Cale. So when you took up production, John, was it more a practical thing, like a, almost like picking up a trade? Like, because
2: you had those skills, it was a thing that was there for you. It had some of that, yeah. But to me, it was it was really survival at the time, and I devoted all this other time and emotion into the VU, and I didn't want to get buried under an avalanche of negativity. And as it happened, Danny Fields was who I knew in the factory. Called up and said that Jack wanted me. Jack Osman wanted me to go to. Detroit and hear a band, I said, great, and went, and the rest is known.
1: We just had Danny Fields on the show uh, a couple months ago.
2: Yeah, he's fun.
1: He is really fun. He is yeah. a really fun guy. You can see how he managed the things he did because he's just such a charmer. And he talked a little bit about the first time that he went to see MC5 and saw the Stooges opening for them.
2: I think that was my first time, too, with the MC5. It was a Nuremberg rally with the MC5 (laughs) up against the wall. And what was it about the Stooges
1: that you liked relative to the sort of brutality of MC5? It
2: was very easy to enjoy them. I mean, there were just three of the guys up there. And they were slamming it. And there was this pixie. He was like the lead singer who was doing all sorts of tricks up there on stage. And my first question was how the hell are I putting all this on the record? But it didn't take long. I think we had like ten days. Five to the chord, five to mix,
1: maybe. There's something about the Stooges and especially Iggy Pop, which is like as intense as their music is, I mean it's like it certainly was at least as intense as any rock music that had come before it. There's also always this element of uh fun like i don't know to say magic. like i don't want to say like goofiness but like there's a almost but something like that like there's a there's an element of like well aren't we all getting over together <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah it's great that thing of climbing up on a table and picking up a table and threatening the audience with the table and then ending up hugging the table and you know all those moments are magical I, I want
1: to play uh one more song that you produced. This is uh, Patty Smith. Uh, you produced her album Horses from 1975, and I, I think when you when you sort of signed up to produce her record, she was really truly a poet performing with a band. Um, why did you sign up to be the producer, and what did you think?
2: She and that band could be. Well, what made sense at the time was kind of a business decision. Not for Patty. For Patty, it was just like visceral. It was really, I, I, I knew the Poetry Center and what she, the way she worked. I got this feeling that this band was really integrated. I mean, they were all on the same page. Yeah, and Patty was like. Looking after everybody, making sure everybody was fine, and everybody was really devoted to party. It was like a perfect situation. And as it turned out, I moved back to New York. And uh, what I hadn't done, I'd done something in Europe. I'd had a band with Spedding, and and we did some, made some inroads, no inroads in in states. So I thought, well, maybe now's the time to do it. And I went back and I. And the opening was with Patty. he went on the road with Patty, and that was a lot of fun
1: and well let 's play a little bit of Patty Smith from uh, Horses from 1975 which my guest John Cal produced. Uh, this is Gloria. <laughs> Uh, not that long ago, I interviewed uh, David Crosby, the singer-songwriter. And, um, you know, you won't find me saying an ill thing about David Crosby's work. He's a beautiful songwriter, beautiful singer. Um, But uh, he and I got into it because he just really doesn't care for slash get the appeal of hip-hop. And is very vociferous about it in a way that makes you think that you're, you know, watching an episode of Donahue from 1986. Um, you know, like he's just this short of saying rap is crap. And uh, he was a really cool guy. Like I really, I I I was surprised so surprised by it, and I liked him so much that I just found it I I laughed actually um, that he was so vociferous about it, and he had a good attitude about it, frankly. Um, but it really caught me by surprise. <laughs> no, was it a misogyny or, or the? No, it wasn't. I mean, that's a very. I think that's a very legitimate reason. To, and there's a lot of legitimate reasons to say it's not for you. Yeah. Um. Uh. And
2: it's outside a lot to, of people's experience.
1: Yeah, totally. And and aesthetically, it's outside of a lot of people's preferences. I think yeah. both of those things are totally fine, yeah. um, and totally understandable. Um, he was pretty dismissive, though. Uh, and and I and I think you're right. I think that um, you know there's a, certainly a legacy of misogyny and homophobia in hip hop that are problematic, and there's you know other issues. Um, but I was really happy when I, I read an interview that you did earlier this year, and when someone asked you what records you had, what new music you had been listening to lately, you basically listed my favorite hip hop records of the year. <laughs> So I wonder what about hip hop interests you?
2: Well, it's 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 really riveting with its honesty for one thing, and uh, that kind of honesty really reflects itself in the music. It's very simple. It it got you know no more than three elements in the, any song, and the songs are changing. I mean, they you know if you go to Earl Sweatshirt and and uh, I'd heard you talk about Vince Staples, Chance Vince, the Rapper, right, Mister. But it's still going on. Um, there's, the songwriting is not like you have Bruce Springsteen's songs, which have verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, and out. It's, it's very uh, laid out in a very different way. And Whatever the chorus is, you're not really sure. I mean, there are great producers like Mike Will mm-hmm. and and uh, Rachel Murd. And they're really imaginative. I'm mean, listening to that. It's really just inspiring, seeing what they come up with. And, and Cocaine was another one who, who wrote gorgeous songs with a, with a wicked sense of humor. I mean, all those songs that he had in there. That's, back, co- that's back, Cocaine with, with two Ks, the, two K's yeah.
1: the G-Funk singer-rapper.
2: Right. Really excellent production. Very funny. And, but then r- writes a song called uh, When It Rains It Pours about Katrina that's, like, heartbreaking.
1: There's something interesting about the uh about the it seems to me like part of the appeal for you at least i as I've heard you explain it is the way the aesthetics of a song, like the structures of a song, are just not that important, they're not central to what it is, and instead the you know it's this kind of rolling yeah. thing, yeah. Definitely that this that, that simplicity of the beat and the fact that you can have these hooks in many forms yeah can lead to something that is very different from you know uh, yeah I mean, Dre, Michael row your
2: boat ashore. Dre had had really strong structure and uh, apart from the rhythm and um, the rhythm is always there one way or another.
1: Do you are you are are you as a as a guy who his whole life has been working. Um, to make sounds is the is the sounds part of it something that's important to you
2: absolutely noise you know they just take noise, they take snippets of noise and use it, and they get their point across really quick It's like with fewer elements, not more fewer. I went for a long time, I went for more I wanted to get that orchestral thing going in there, but then I realized. These guys are not doing. These guys are, are getting their point across with. And it's really slash and burn kind of. If you're a good editor with Pro Tools, you're ahead of the game. And it's, it's. I can hear the stitching going on in there, but it's it doesn't matter. Well, the stitching is part of the
1: yeah. aesthetic. I mean, sometimes I, I hear someone say, you know, why don't you have a drummer playing the drums? And there's certainly, you know, there's a, a billion drummers who can recreate the drum pattern, but part of the aesthetic is that it is this sometimes as narrow as a sound, a single, you you might have a, a snare from one song and a bass drum from another song that's mixed with a bass drum from a synthesizer, um, and that is the basis of that drum pattern, and that's something that cannot be recreated. Uh, particularly effectively by a live drummer even if they're a, even if they've spent their whole life practicing doing it like quest love from the roots or something like that
2: yeah well uh Pharrell and Snoop did it on drop it like I said they have a spray can in there yeah it's really there was an iconic noise right there
1: yeah Totally. I want to play one more song from uh, your album, Fragments of a Rainy Season, which has just been re-released. My guest is John Cale. It's your cover of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, which is a song that you found a lot of new in that um, in some ways helped give it some new life um, or at least a, a, a second alternate life. Um, let's take a listen. She tied you to a kitchen chair. She broke your throne. She cut your hair.
0: And from your lips.
1: Version of that song seems like a reflection of this interest you have to always find something new, even if it's in something old. Does that seem true to you?
2: Yeah, I thought it was really gorgeous the first time I heard it with the full band and the girls. And, and but then I I, I I asked for the lyrics and Leonard sent them to me, and they were really they were I couldn't see myself singing some of them. They were, they really refer to Judaism and his relationship to God and all. So I, I chose the cheeky verses, the uh, fun ones. You have this thing in, in Leonard songs where he crosses, crosses the line between mysticism and reality. And he walks back and forth really casually between all two of them. And, um, and it's,
1: it's special. Well, John Kale, I'm so grateful that you took all this time to come in and talk to me. It was really nice to meet you. Pleasure. John Kale. The reissue of his album, Fragments of a Rainy Season, is out this week on Domino Records. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Last month, we did a live Bullseye in Chicago as part of the Chicago Podcast Festival. And as you probably already know, Chicago is an improv town, maybe the... Improv town. So it's sort of the perfect home for TJ Jagodowski and Dave Pasquese. They're genuine improv legends. They're the subject of a feature film. They've been fawned over in the New York Times. They've been covered on Radio Lab. You've seen them on screen in movies like Groundhog Day and Stranger Than Fiction, but it's what they do on stage that really matters. TJ and Dave start from nothing, literally curtain up. On the two of them. Then they weave together an hour long play. Trust us, they say, this is all made up. They go into every performance totally unprepared. So, this is a scene from the beginning of one of their shows. Uh, so far, we figured out that Dave has just gotten fired from something for doing something dramatic. And uh, he's kind of commiserating with TJ.
3: Fine. Yeah, you'd be happens, great. You'd be, be an fine. asset to any corporation or company. I you don't know? know about that. Yeah, I do. I do. That's
5: nice of you to say. It was
3: heroic, you know. It was nah. like you were riding into battle for everybody, you know. You wore, you brought the banner in there, and that's pretty. That's pretty awesome. Hey, you know what? If you don't stand, you know, because you'll fall for anything. Right. Right. Right.
5: You know what? And yeah. I know it's a softball team we
1: start somewhere, we will start somewhere we, start somewhere. Right. we, start somewhere if we Here's my conversation with TJ and Dave Live on stage at the Promontory Theater in Chicago <laughs> Guys, welcome to the show I'm so happy to have you two here um, You are true Chicagoans uh, You are maybe the only two people in the world Who have figured out how to make a living improvising uh,
5: Yeah, him anyway <laughs> <laughs>
3: Big cash money.
5: <laughs> yeah, that's right. If uh, if, any, if there's any young improvisers out there, and you're in it for any other reason than the money, I don't know why.
1: <laughs> How long have you guys been improvising, uh, each of you, outside of the partnership?
5: Uh, I guess I started in about uh, boy, this is back in the uh, the 1900s. Um, that was uh, uh, probably I went to my first class when I was in college. And that Boys way...
3: were just back from Vietnam. I'd
5: say, right. But 1981 is probably when I first started improvising.
1: That's the year I was born.
3: <laughs> were you going to say that regardless?
1: No. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and I started in like 94. <laughs> I
5: had already wasted
1: an entire life before you were on the planet. <laughs> 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 what, what drew you to it? I mean, did you start doing it because you thought that you would just become a better, more castable actor or you would be better at stand-up comedy or something like that? No, I was not at all interested in a, as being a performer. I had,
5: no, I had no experience whatsoever. wasn't in high school plays or anything like that. I was in college studying something completely different, and I tagged along with my brother to an improv class because my mom made me, and I just ended up really enjoying it. What did you enjoy about it? It was fun to goof off, and um, what did I? Do? The freedom of it, and the, this like, oh, let's just see what happens. I like that about. I liked that about it, and I still like that about it. The really not having any idea or expectations, and just like, well, let's see what this does. Sometimes that's not going to work out too well. A lot of times, it, it'll be pretty interesting.
1: So there are like, um, you know, there are a few jobs in comedy that are here in chicago like you can be in the cast of the second city you can be in the touring cast of the second city um
3: and now you can be on a boat
1: yeah uh, with
3: the with the second city a cruise ship um but that's yeah that's probably some some total
1: so why have both of you decided to stay here in chicago
5: i really like chicago And, and, right, there isn't as much much work for an actor here, but it's uh, it's got other things that I think uh, you can't... Only three million of us get to live here. (laughs) The entire rest of the planet have to live somewhere else. The
3: day I moved here, I swore I'd stay until there was a podcast fest.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm free. (laughs) But, I mean, it really is a choice. I mean, like, I I, uh, grew up in San Francisco... And I have friends like uh, W. Kamau Bell, who's a stand-up comic, and he lives still in the San Francisco Bay Area. You know, he he became a San Francisco comic, and he's managed to get a couple of TV shows, but at some point he made the decision, I am not going to go to Los Angeles or New York. I want to be part of this, even if it means that, you know, whatever, I'm playing the Sacramento punchline indefinitely.
5: Yeah, and also, I mean, I'd say it's a choice. But all, they, Los Angeles and New York, they're, they've
3: made it very clear they're fine without me. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, for me, I just liked. I knew that improvisation was what I wanted to do, and it can be done in those other places. It can be done just about anywhere, literally in the world now. But not as often, and in my opinion, as consistently well as as here. Um, and plus, just like the, the pleasure of living in Chicago was greater than, than I've had the times I've, you know, been to New York or, or certainly to Los Angeles. It just was like it's good. Yeah, there's good people, and about and
5: imp- there's not too many of them. And uh, about improvisation and the support of improvisation, this Chicago, not even just the improvisers, but the audiences come out and see stuff, and you you can actually do a show for people who are not other performers, and it's it's pretty great. And and I I think
1: that's rare. Why was it that improv was what you wanted to do, like, with your life?
3: We had no other skills. (laughs) Um, So the the options were were few. Um, If you've ever fallen in love with anything, then you know that feeling. And improvisation happened to be the thing that I fell in love with. That if it's the thing that makes your heart beat faster, then you don't even think about, like that you're devoting yourself to it. You're just doing what you like as often as you possibly can uh, are allowed to do it. Uh, and that's, for me, what it was with, with improvisation.
1: Do either of you remember the first time that your heart started beating faster?
3: Oh, yeah. I went to Second City and saw a set, and uh, I, I was kind of doomed at that point because it looked like the most wonderful thing that I'd ever seen. It, it, people were enjoying it. They were enjoying it. It was It was going to be different every single time, and and I knew I was either screwed or blessed in that second of, of thinking, like, if I don't try to do that, I might never be happy, is, is the thought that I had. Um, and it turns out I was never happy. Um, <laughs> so I guess that answers the screwed or blessed part in retrospect.
5: Yeah, I think probably that one of the first classes for me, I, I enjoyed that. Also about why I'm doing it, it's Back then, when um, that was a long time ago, and improvisation was not something that anyone did for, that anyone came to see anyone else do, like now there's long form improvisation, and that's the entire show, and there was no such thing back then, and so it attracted, it was a guaranteed dead end, and it attracted a certain kind of individual with no ambition, and uh, those are my people. Um, I enjoyed that about it. This sense of community with a bunch of other folks who just like doing that, f- with no end game
1: in sight. Yes. Yeah, I mean,
3: our ambition for seeking out substances.
1: Yeah,
4: right. <laughs> yes, <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: but I mean, you say that with no ambition, but that in, a, in and of itself is a kind of ambition to thwart you, a, where, where you aspire to thwart your own. Career success. Oh, it takes a lot of energy. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. that, you, that you aspire to be someone who is doing something for the sake of doing it is, in itself, a, a pretty ambitious thing.
3: Thank you for putting it that way. Um, I'm and
1: not sure if it was a compliment. Not 100. Uh, well, I'm going to take that. it that way. Uh, cool. Uh, you can't stop <laughs> was, me
3: from taking
5: it as a compliment. Jesse said the nicest thing. What <laughs>
3: <laughs> did he say? He said you decided to drive real fast down a dead end. Uh-huh. Um, what is what is wart
5: ridden mean?
3: <laughs> um, and it's not as though there isn't um, you know gratification along the way because during the day we were doing a lot of the same jobs as our as our you know as our as our friends were. I was running, you know, order running number and running numbers um, orders <laughs> at the board of trade or whatever during the day. But at night, you know, if you did it all right, then 30 or 40 people laughed at you. So there was, you know, gratification enough along the way to say like, yeah, it might be a dead end, but people are laughing at me while I walk down this dead end.
1: Can we change your origin story so that you were running numbers? Yeah. Or just other things that Malcolm X did before he was Malcolm X. My grandfather ran numbers for a long
3: time out of a used car lot back home. <laughs> He'll never hear this, otherwise he'd be furious. Those are great stories.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell, me a little bit, tell me a little bit about what you do when the two of you step on stage for a T.J. and Dave show?
5: We, the way we look at it is to try to figure out what we're walking into, what is already going on, rather than what we can make. Um, so it's a, I, it, I think, makes absolutely no difference to the audience, um, but it's, it's different for us that we believe that something is already happening, and our job is to figure out what's already occurring rather than how clever we can make something.
1: We'll continue my conversation with TJ and Dave after a short break. They'll tell me their trick, how they managed to keep the act up without tipping their hands, and how, after all these years, they still get scared to go on stage. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Tushy. Wiping with dry toilet paper has been the norm in America since the 1890s. Tushy believes our bathrooms are ready for a cleaner, healthier, and greener change. Tushy is a sleek bidet that attaches to any standard toilet and is designed to spray your nether regions completely clean and be better for the environment than wiping. It takes just 10 minutes to install it yourself. Shop bidets for modern humans at hellotushy.com bullseye or use the discount code bullseye for 10% off a Tushy bidet. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Looking for a brainy laugh? Check out the Ask Me Another podcast for hilarious puzzles, word games, and trivia. Test your knowledge of favorite TV moms with Connie Britton, stage superhero fights with Wyatt Cenac, and roll a 20-sided die with David Harbour from Stranger Things. Ask Me Another is your favorite game night, but a whole lot funnier. Play along now on the NPR One app or at npr.org slash podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get to the rest of my conversation with improv legends TJ and Dave in a minute. But first, you know about Pop Rocket? It's our sister show. It is a roundtable discussion about popular culture. Very insightful, very fun, very funny. It's hosted by the hilarious stand-up comedian Guy Branham. Guy's with me. Guy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse, this week it's very exciting. It's our 100th episode, and we're going to be talking about pop culture families. We're going to talk
0: about Roseanne and the Huxtables and uh, families in movies like The Godfather
1: and The Lion in Winter. It's fun. That sounds fun. Guy and the Pop Rocket gang are sort of like my podcast family. Pop Rocket. Find it in iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. One of the things that I've seen the two of you do on film is walk out on stage with silence for 15, 20, 30 seconds, which might not seem like a particularly long time if you're just hearing those numbers, but when you're standing on stage in silence without a plan and the audience is staring at you thinking, when are you going to do something funny, it's like a thousand million billion years...
3: When we hear people start to leave, we start to talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, it does, it, it can feel like a long time, but sometimes it takes that long to get a clue. You know that moment where, like, in Quantum Leap when Scott Bakula jumps into someone else's body and then has to, like, find a mirror? Um, <laughs> It's a little bit like that, because like, we've kind of arrived at this place, and at that moment, neither of us knows who we are or who we are to each other, or if we're a man or a woman, or, you know, like, and so it takes a little bit of patience at the beginning to, to see what, if anything, is already going, is, is already going on. But that is a gut check. That, that time is a gut check.
1: How do you see it when it happens? How do you see what? How do you see that? what is there? How do you recognize? Oh,
5: um, it's interesting you use the term like the mirror because uh, we're that for each other. Oh, I see that by the way he's looking at me, I must be this kind of person. He seems a little, he seems not too terribly scared, so I must not be frightening, and uh, we must know each other pretty well, and that, that's kind of how you figure it out. Yeah. And, and it starts just with the relationship. We're... That's really what, we're, what we get the most information from, is how we treat one another.
3: It takes me a couple of seconds when Dave looks at me to realize, I'm oh, man, I'm a super sexy, intelligent dude. And that seems to be every show. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what do you think is special about the relationship? Sometimes he's a bowler. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the,
5: the some of the particulars change, but that, those things always
1: remain the same. Those are the what What do you think is special about the relationship between the two of you that has kept you coming back and doing this together for so long
3: um, I love him um, i don't know if that's special, but i I love david and um, I think where I am round, David is sharp, and where like I am in the realms where i 'm dark he's he's light and so he interests me um, we don't we think similarly about improvisation but we think very differently about a lot of other stuff and so um it's engaging to have a conversation with him even if it's in front of people um as you know a couple of housewives having tea it's um he intrigues me yeah and also i yeah, i love him and and
5: uh it's we have a way of communicating that I've not, I have only experienced one other time before with a, a buddy of mine that I used to improvise with, uh, Joel Murray. We, but we were roommates. We traveled together. We knew each other really well. And then we started improvising together. So we had a, a way of communicating that was unusual but understandable. The way we, we, I don't know why, but we seem to be able to understand one another in a way that seems like magic to, on the outside.
3: How does it feel on the inside? Really oh. normal. Um. Oh, I'm sorry. Just a, <laughs> a sucking abyss. Um, <laughs> when, right now?
1: <laughs> Are you still scared to go up on stage when you ha- have nothing? Oh, when, well, it doesn't matter if I have nothing or not. Just absolutely
5: scared to go up on stage. Yeah. Um, alert, I mean, alert, aware that, oh, this, we could just eat it. Um, and that's that's always, that's, I think that's fine to have, it's necessary actually.
3: Yeah, it, I'll always find a reason to be scared. Um, but also as an improviser, there's no like you don't get a There's no proof that you can do it um, other than doing it. And so I'm all, like kind of always ready for someone in the back to be like, "Who said you could do this?" You know, or like. What is happening, and why do you think you can do this? And I'd be able to offer nothing of proof other than, like, I don't know, they let me, you know? Like, walked out here, and they didn't stop us. Um, So I'm kind of always a little bit ready for someone to try and stop us.
1: I think if you're doing stand-up comedy, you know exactly what it is. You know exactly how to recognize what you're doing is working which is to say the audience is laughing. I think the two of you in your improvisation are not always specifically seeking laughs. And so I wonder, if you're not specifically seeking laughs, how do you know that it's working? We don't.
5: Um, and, uh, right, we are not suggesting that this is going to be funny. We, we are... The only guarantee is that it's unprepared. Uh, LAUGHTER and so, we, we're, so we're, we don't know if it's going well. We just know moment to moment, oh, this seems, no, this seems honest, this seems honest, this seems honest. And our belief is if, if we do that, it's all going to work out just fine. What do you mean when you say honest? Uh, tr- responding honestly given the situation that has been established thus far. So, uh, you know, if, uh, if, if we've decided that we're living in the physical world and uh, I can't imagine some supernatural event occurring and and, well we just treat it like every day. Um, No, we've established that these two people treat each other this way. I can't all of a sudden be horribly mean to them, Um, although most of the time I would love nothing more.
3: (laughs) And we have said before, like, when when something's funny, there's this audible you know, like it, laughter, you know, and you can hear it, that it would be nice if there was an audible response to like, if something was, oh, that's mildly intriguing, and, and, <laughs> but everyone agreed that when that happened, they'd be like, oh, <laughs> then you'd kind of know what you were doing, you know, like you were having an effect, or like, hmm, I'm, you know, I'm intently listening, and that sounds like, <laughs> you know, like, then we'd be like, yeah, they're in, you know, but but otherwise, we don't know. We, 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 have no, we have
5: no gauge. But there's a kind of silence that we know it's going well, right? Total silence. Oh, they're, they're listening. Rustling and shifting and things like that. Oh, we're, we're probably not very interesting
3: right now. We like it quiet enough to hear the hammer cock on the gun in back.
5: And <laughs> that guy who says, you can't do this. <laughs>
1: Do you guys feel like successes? Oh, phenomenal. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah, for a long
3: time I tried to drink myself to death and I'm still alive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a phenomenal. Uh, I have a lady who loves me, a, a, a home, and a, a dog. Um, vegetables are delicious. Uh, <laughs> there's no sugar, sh- there's bakeries. Everywhere. Um, Yeah, uh, yes. All those things are true,
1: and I'm a failure. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, TJ and Dave. Thank you. you. TJ Jagodowski and Dave Pasquese recorded live at the Promontory Theater in Chicago. The movie about TJ and Dave is called Trust Us, This Is All Made Up. They've also got a Vimeo original series. You can watch video of their live performances on Vimeo. And they also perform regularly in Chicago and New York. They've got a book about improv. It's called Improvisation at the Speed of Life, the TJ and Dave book. Check it out. It's Bullseye. Split Single is a band fronted by Jason Nardusi. Jason also plays in Bob Mould's band and in Superchunk. And there's a legend that says it was his bass playing that inspired the Foo Fighters' Dave Grohl to start a band. So you can thank him for, you know, Nirvana and stuff. When we did a live edition of Bullseye in Chicago last month, Jason came by to play a couple songs from his band's new album called Metal Frames. Here with Nora O'Connor on backup vocals and percussion is Split Single. The song's called Glory. Glory.
0: She can't resist the fight These knives are sharp and clay There was someone she knew Whose magnets to her moon Till she scorched the earth Artillery, head high, munition in her eyes, a life set to destroy. Look what the devil has drawn from you. Look what the devil has drawn from you. Look what the devil has drawn from you a is drawn from you. Fig- theoso---------
1: theoso--------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------------- hey, since you're listening to the podcast of this week's Bullseye, guess what? You get a special bonus. You get to listen to the second song from Split Singles Performance. Let's take a listen to Leave My Mind.
0: Black portals shine and fade, reflecting back the light. Streets have emptied every. Turns to their lives. My hands have hollowed. They won't settle down without a dream they grasp. Something that I've found. I must be lonely. I must be dead. Why won't you leave me why won't you leave
1: single recorded live at the Promontory Theater in Chicago. That was Glory and Leave My Mind. Their new album, Metal Frames, is out now. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He got help from Christian Duenas. Our production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Kara Hart. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go team. Uh, they and their label, Light in the Attic Records, gave it to us. You can check out their great music from Light in the Attic. And if you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. As in, you don't have to pay a penny. Just go to MaximumFun.org to listen on the web or open up your favorite podcasting software uh, or NPR One or whatever. You know, There's a lot of ways to listen to them for free. We're on Twitter at Bullseye, you can follow us there and uh, find all the new shows and the links and and whatnot. Uh, You can also follow me on Twitter, at Jesse Thorne, and we love to hear what you think about the show, so share it with us there, as long as you don't correct my grammar. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.